0: the first book of Samuel, and chapter 17. I'm going to read from the New English Bible. 1 Samuel 17, from verse 1. The Philistines collected their forces for war and massed at Socorh in Judah. They camped between Socorh and Azakar at Ephes Damim. Saul and the Israelites also massed and camped in the Vale of Elah. They drew up their lines facing the Philistines, the Philistines occupying a position on one hill and the Israelites on another with a valley between them. A champion came out from the Philistine camp, a man named Goliath from Gath. He was over nine feet in height. He had a bronze helmet on his head, and he wore plate armor of bronze weighing 5,000 shekels. On his legs were bronze greaves, and one of his weapons was a dagger of bronze. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and its head which was of iron, weighed six hundred shekels, and his shield-bearer marched ahead of him. The champion stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why do you come out to do battle, you slaves of Saul? I am the Philistine champion. Choose your man to meet me. If he can kill me in fair fight, we will become your slaves. But if I prove too strong for him and kill him, you shall be our slaves and serve us. Here and now, I defy the ranks of Israel. Give me a man, said the Philistine, and we will fight it out. When Saul and the Israelites heard what the Philistine said, they were shaken and dismayed. David was the son of an Ephrathite called Jesse, who had eight sons. By Saul's time, he'd become a feeble old man, and his three eldest sons had followed Saul to the war. The eldest was called uh, Eliab, the next Abinadab, and the third Shema. David was the youngest. The three eldest followed Saul while David used to go to Saul's camp and back to Bethlehem to mind his father's flocks. Morning and evening, for forty days, the Philistine came forward and took up his position. Then one day Jesse said to his son David, <clears throat> Take your brothers and ephah of this parched grain and these ten loaves of bread, and run with them to the camp. These ten cream cheeses are for you to take to the commanding officer, See if your brothers are well, and bring back some token from them. Saul and the brothers and all the Israelites were in the Vale of Elah, fighting the Philistines. Early next morning, David left someone in charge of the sheep, set out on his errand, and went as Jesse had told him. He reached the lines just as the army was going out to take up position and was raising the war cry. The Israelites and the Philistines drew up their ranks opposite each other. David left his things in charge of the quartermaster, ran to the line, and went up to his brothers to greet them. While he was talking to them, the Philistine champion Goliath came out from the Philistine ranks and issued his challenge in the same words as before, and David heard him. When the Israelites saw the man, they ran from him in fear. Look at this man who comes out day after day to defy Israel, they said. The king is to give a rich reward to the man who kills him. He will give him his daughter in marriage too and will exempt his family from service due in Israel. Then David turned to his neighbors and said, What is to be done for the man who kills this Philistine and wipes out our disgrace? And who is he, an uncircumcised Philistine, to defy the army of the living God? The people told him how the matter stood and what was to be done for the man who killed it. His elder brother, Eliab, overheard David talking with the men and grew angry. What are you doing here, he asked. And who have you left to look after those few sheep in the wilderness? I know you, you impudent young rascal. You've only come to see the fighting. David answered, what have I done now? I only ask the question." And he turned away from him to someone else and repeated his question. But everybody gave him the same answer. What David had said was overheard and reported to Saul, who sent for him. David said to him, Do not lose heart, sir. I will go and fight this Philistine. Saul answered, You cannot go and fight with this Philistine. You're only a lad. He's been a fighting man all his life. David said to Saul, Sir, I am my father's shepherd. When a lion or bear comes and carries off a sheep from the flock, I go after it and attack it and rescue the victim from its jaws. Then if it turns on me, I seize it by the beard and batter it to death. Lions I have killed and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine will fare no better than they. He has defied the army of the living God. The Lord who saved me from the lion and the bear will save me from this Philistine. Go then, said Saul, and the Lord be with you. He put his own tunic on David, placed a bronze helmet on his head, and gave him a coat of mail to wear. He then fastened his sword on David, over his tunic. But David hesitated, because he had not tried them. And said to Saul, I cannot go with these because I have not tried them. So he took them off. Then he picked up his stick, chose five smooth stones from the brook, and put them in a shepherd's bag which served as his pouch. He walked out to meet the Philistine with his sling in his hand. The Philistine came on towards David with his shield bearer marching ahead. And he looked David up and down and had nothing but contempt for this handsome lad with his ruddy cheeks and bright eyes. He said to David, Am I a dog that you come out against me with sticks? They swore at him in the name of his God. Come on, he said, and I'll give your flesh to the birds and the beasts. David answered, You have come against me with sword and spear and dagger, but I have come against you in the name of the Lord of hosts, God of the army of Israel which you have defied the Lord will put you into my power this day I will kill you and cut your head off and leave your carcass and the carcasses of the Philistines to the birds and the wild beasts all the world shall know that there is a God in Israel all those who are gathered here shall see that the Lord saves neither by sword nor spear the battle is the Lord's, and he will put you all into our power. When the Philistine began moving towards him again, David ran quickly to engage him. He put his hand into his bag, took out a stone, slung it, and struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead, and he fell flat on his face on the ground. So David proved the victor with his sling and stone. He struck Goliath down and gave him a mortal wound, though he had no sword. Then he ran to the Philistine and stood over him. And grasping his sword, he drew it out of the scabbard, dispatched him, and cut off his head. The Philistines, when they saw that their hero was dead, turned and ran. The men of Israel and Judah at once raised the war cry and hookedly pursued them all the way to Gath even to the gates of Ekron the road that runs to Sha'arim, Gath and Ekron was strewn with their dead on their return from the pursuit of the Philistines the Israelites plundered their camp, David took Goliath's head and carried it to Jerusalem, leaving his weapons in his tent I want just to Read one verse in the New Testament, which one cannot help but feel could well have been that this other incident we've read about in 1 Samuel 17 might well have been in the apostle's mind when he penned it. It is 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 12. 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 12. Fight the good fight of faith, lay hold on life eternal whereunto thou wast called and didst confess the good confession in the sight of many witnesses. Fight the good fight of faith, lay hold on life eternal. I just want this evening um, to speak from the story that we have read, the well-known story of David and Goliath, and underline just one or two very simple lessons. Not being at all clear as to what really we should do, or what we should do this evening. And then finally this came uh, to me. <clears throat> so I pass it on to And uh, we'll see what we can learn from this um, story. And the first thing is this, that we're in a fight. As soon as anyone is born of God, they very quickly discover that they are in a battle. I suppose that's one of the first things. Apart from the joy of having sins forgiven, apart from the wonderful bliss of peace with God, we then begin to discover that we're in a hostile world. We find all kinds of people we thought would have been holy with us and delighted that we'd become Christians are far from delighted. We find some people who who, who have always appeared to us to be decent and upright people uh, are only too ready to destroy our faith. And pour cold water upon the joy that has come to us, we discover that we are um, we, we are swimming against the current, the whole current is in the opposite direction, we're in a battle. Now that I think is the very first thing we discover. God, in his mercy and grace, when we're babes in Christ tent- tends to cover us and protect us from the worst part of the battle. And the Apostle Paul uh, speaks again and again of the need of enduring hardness as good soldiers of Jesus Christ. God has a great battle, and he needs men who will grow up and who can stand in that battle so that those who are being born of God may be protected from it. Now, if you're very young in the Lord, I'm quite sure that there will be some things we shall say this evening that will help you. But really what we've got to say tonight is for those who are growing up in the Lord, what God wants to do with you and me, that we might be enabled to become front-line soldiers, those who... Endure hardness as good soldiers of Jesus Christ. We're not entangled with the things of this life. Those who are absolutely given up to our Master and Lord. And those who by their own lives laid down are protecting the others. Someone prayed the other evening about walling up the breaches, um, building up the breaches in the wall. Do you know who it was? Someone said something about all law, maker's repairer, repairers of the breaches in the wall. How few Christians there are that can repair a breach in the wall. are so bothered with their own things and their own satisfaction, and their own enjoyment, that they can't step into the gap you find this again and again with the apostle, uh, not with the apostle but uh, with the Lord in the Old Testament he speaks to the prophet saying I sought for a man to stand in the gap and I found none. Someone who would just stand there and intercede. Someone who would as it were fill up the uh, breach before it's too late. Now that's looking at it in another way but this matter of being a good soldier is the same kind of thing. We need to grow up spiritually, so it's no longer what I get but what he gets it's no longer my enjoyment but his enjoyment, it's no longer uh, uh, my work but his work, no longer my purpose but his purpose and so on and so forth this is all part of Christian maturity, growing up you've got to stand in the front line not just for yourself but for the rest And maybe give your life, certainly spiritually, if not actually, so that others can live. Now, we are in a fight. And even if when we're young in the Lord, we're not wholly conscious of that conflict and fight, we're in it. Because by our salvation we have been introduced into a tremendous conflict that spans time. The great battle between God and his enemy, between good and evil, truth and the lie, darkness and light, kingdom of heaven and this world. And if you and I have been saved, we've been, whether we know it or not, put into the heart of the thing. Dear little you, insignificant, unworthy, no, not much. My, same myself as well. We've been introduced into to something so tremendous, so colossal, that we can hardly believe it this is true. Now, this is exactly what we have in this story. We have a fight. We have a conflict. We have (coughs) the armies of the Philistines, and we have the armies of Israel. And they're all lined up in war position on either side of a valley, the Valley of Elah. And, uh, the whole thing is concentrated in one man. Oh, what a man. Nine foot tall. Now, you, I am, I am quite sure, in your life, have seen some tall gentleman. I don't know whether anyone here has seen a seven-footer. I once saw a man seven foot Four inches and believe me, when you see a six foot five or six foot seven, they seem tall. but when you 've seen a seven foot uh, four, um, then you really have seen something. Uh, but this man wasn't like a bean pole. We normally think of people who are very tall as being like bean poles. This man was <coughs> enormous. We could have got someone like Inge in his greed um, uh, that went on his, uh, <laughs> on his leg. <coughs> and we could have got Gale in the other one. <laughs> the great... Um, his armour was simply enormous, so enormous that the, the scripture actually makes record of it and tells us that it weighed a colossal sum. This man wasn't a sort of a beam pole of a man who'd sort of outgrown his strength because he'd shot up when he was an adolescent. This man was an enormous man. His spear that he carried was like a weaver's beam. Now, if you've seen a weaver's beam, that's something. That's one of the things that shoots backwards and forwards, you know, the huge thing, and the very big one. And it tells you how much even the, the, the iron head of the spear weighed. This man was enormous. And the whole battle was in one sense concentrated, um, condensed into this one giant of a man. Now you know, this is what happens in all our lives. Most of us Christians have a Goliath somewhere. And he's no friend. We've got somewhere in our lives, perhaps in our temperament, perhaps in our background, perhaps in our circumstances, a Goliath. There he stands, day after day, and shouts out at us, defiance. Huh. You're a Christian. You're saved. What about me? You come out against me and we'll see what kind of Christian you are. We'll soon see what kind of faith you've got. We'll soon see what kind of spiritual life you possess. I'm here and you can see me. And if you can't see me, you can certainly hear me I defy you and all that you stand for now most of us have got something like that in our life some complex that gets us down some besetting sin some weakness it's a Goliath defies us we go to some meeting and we have such a Blessed time, and the Lord meets us, and we're transported into heaven, and we feel that everything's going to be different now, forever after. And lo and behold, within a week or two's time, there is old Goliath standing with his legs apart like some great immovable fortress, shouting out his defiance once more. You thought that you were different. You thought. That God had done something in you. What about me? I'm here again. Oh, how often it happens. It's not only in our personal lives, but so often also in our local situation. Of course, when we speak of our personal lives, I suppose we ought to speak of our family life, home life, business life. Oh, there are Goliaths in. Some people's boss is a kind of Goliath, or the foreman, or the manager, or headmaster, or whoever it is, matron, or sister. They've got a Goliath in their life. That person defies them. They know they should love that person. They know they should be patient with that person. They know they should show the humility of Christ before that person. But that person defies them. There's something in that person and something behind that person that positively defies everything that's in them of God. As soon as we meet that person, before long we're quaking. We feel as if all our power has gone, our life has gone, our spirituality has gone. Everything's gone a Goliath. Some people have got it at home. I must be very careful. (laughs) Some feel they have a husband that's a Goliath and some feel they have a wife that's a Goliath. Some people have parents or some relative. It's a Goliath. All the difficulties that can come to us. But, however we look at it, and all humour aside, the fact of the matter is that. That there is something that defies the armies of Israel. Defies, if you like, the power of God. Defies the name of the Lord in us. Taunts us. Actually taunts us. Doesn't just defy, but taunts us. Who are you? You're nothing. It's not only, as I say, in matters that are um, personal, but it's local That We think of a local company like this. Oh, the Goliaths that come. Things that somehow they may be all kinds of things, but there that Goliath stands, as it were, in our way as a people and defies us. And the most amazing thing can happen in a company of believers. Everyone can lose heart. Everyone can lose heart. So that some problem can get right on top of a whole company and sit on them. Day after day, you hear the voice. When we worship at the Lord's table, we can almost hear the challenge. I defy you. And many people begin to quake. What's the good of worshipping the Lord? We've got a problem in our midst. It's no good worshipping the Lord. It's no good praising the Lord. These hymns don't mean anything because we've got a problem in our... And so the defiance of the enemy begins to work in us. We come into our prayer times and before we know where we are, we feel we can't tackle that. We can't tackle that. It's too deep-seated. It's too strong. We can't drag that out into the open. It's a Goliath defying the name of the Lord in his people. Taunting us. We won't always be honest about it, but there it is. Taunting us. Saying, you are the people of God. You are the armies of Israel. I defy you. Oh, how I think of the cases of some of the drug cases. I think of other things that have sometimes got us down as a company, sat on it, and a kind of gloom spreads over everyone so that we are just unable to move forward. Or oh, many other things too, you know. Just the way ahead sometimes, just the way ahead, just to be free in the Lord, just to be to go on with him, just to do the will of God, all oh, the battle. Sometimes it's as if the Goliath stands in the way with his legs astride, that path and says, no, no, no. I defy you to go forward. If it's true locally how true it is on the wider scale. All oh, the Goliaths that face the people of God today. When you think of the things in this country, when you think of the things that wouldn't have even been named a few years ago, which can now be seen blatantly on screens, in theatres, printed on quite normal bookstores, It's like a Goliath. Something's defying us. Standing there and saying, I defy you in the name of the Lord. I I defy you. I defy the name of the Lord in you. And you know, Because we are divided, because we are scattered, because we are compromised, because the spirit of the world has come amongst us who are God's people, because we are not filled with the spirit of God, because we do not know what it is to be crucified with Christ and to know the power of his resurrection. Because of these things, a gloom comes over the whole so that no one does anything. A peep, And everyone says, of course, we need revival. But no one does anything about it. It's a Goliath that stands before the people of God, the church today, and says, I defy you. There's much else we could say about this too. There are many other things that can be called Goliaths. The defying the church of the living God today over the whole face of the earth. What is the, conf- the, the conflict objective? What is the objective of the forces of darkness? Very simple. To rob God's people of their possession. To rob them of their freedom and to rob them of their power. That's the objective. When Goliath went out, if you look in uh, uh, chapter 17 of Samuel and verse 9, this is what Goliath said. If he be able to fight with me and kill me, then will we be your slaves. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then shall ye be our slaves and serve us. Could there be anything clearer? The objective of this battle between the Philistines and Israel, summed up in this giant of a man, Goliath, was to subjugate the people of God repossess their land and make them slaves so that all the fruit of the the Passover all the glorious consequences of the exodus all that mighty being led through the wilderness by a pillar of cloud and fire and all that faith that possessed the land should be lost to them Their whole history rendered futile and vain. Dear child of God, the enemy has only one objective in this conflict and that is to rob you of your possessions in Christ. And he will do everything foul and fair to rob you of your possession. Oh, the Christians who haven't got peace. The Christians who have no joy. The Christians who have no spiritual life. The Christians who have no power. This is their possession. The kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, not externality. The kingdom of God is righteousness, peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Oh, how the enemy would rob you of everything that you've won. My dear friend, you may be saved, and this is what happens to so many of us. After a while, five years, ten years, we find that we're saved. We know we're saved, but we've lost everything. There are lines of misery on our faces that have not just come overnight. They're etched there by a permanent set of the jaw. We know we're saved. We know that God has done something, but we've been robbed of our possessions, almost unwittingly. They've been taken from us. Our freedom. The Apostle Paul said in Galatians 5, Stand fast, therefore, in the freedom wherewith Christ has set you free, and be not entangled again in that yoke of bondage. It's this that we're talking about. Oh, how the enemy compromises. Some things look like an angel of light when they first appear to us. But the end of it is bondage. Compromise, which seems so much to be the right thing to do. And the end of it, we've lost our freedom of action, spiritually. We're bound. Now, a man who's bound, is not necessarily someone who's obviously inhibited, but someone who can no longer take action spiritually in his own life or in anything else. He is inhibited in that way. You know the kind of thing, you know that you ought to do so, and so but you can't. You know that you should take action in your life on this, but you can't. You know that such and such should be said, can't say it. You've lost the freedom to act. You are not. You are not slaves. You're God's free men. Well, I could say a lot more about this, but the fact is the objective of this battle is to rob God's people of their possessions, to rob them of their freedom, and to rob them of their power. Their power to possess their possessions, to live as God's covenant people in the land which God has given them. Now, you see, uh, this is so very true uh, with us spiritually. Do you know that the objective of the enemy is simply to contradict all the history that lies behind your salvation? so that the fact that Christ died for you, the fact that God gave him for your salvation, the fact that with him God has freely given you all things, means practically not a thing. You are saved, but by the skin of your teeth. It's a grim hanging on. And the devil, there's a cackle that comes out of the pit. And that's what stops us from praising the Lord and praying. Because we can almost hear that cackle. Something that laughs at us. Defies us. It's Goliath. You people of God, look at you all. Quaking in your shoe. I've only got to take a few steps forward and you all flee farther up the mountainside. Shake that great fear, and some of you would faint with fright, and so they would. That's the objective of this battle, and it is to subjugate them, compromising them, so that they would be effectively divorced from God's power and resources. It's a sobering thought that the enemy, not don't be condemned about this because this is the enemy. No child of God wants to get into this situation. This is the enemy. Once we wake up to the fact that this is what the enemy is trying to do, we're halfway through to freedom. Don't be condemned by what I've said. Feel oh all, dear, dear, dear. You mustn't be condemned. This is the enemy who's doing trouble with many of us, we don't realize it. So as soon as Goliath comes out, our knees knock each other from almost before he sort of come out to the touchway line. Now, the fact is this, that we can get to such a position that we are a living contradiction. Peace we sing and speak Joy, joy unspeakable, filled with glory, we say. Come to the Lord and you'll know it. We haven't got it. We speak of a deep joy. People always speak like this. They say, ah, there's a deep, deep joy. So deep that you never know it. (laughs) Now, it's true that like everything else, you get used to something. (laughs) This is true. You get used to something. You can move into a new home, and when you first move into the... The largeness of it is a luxury. Within a few months, it seems to you to have a lot of problems. And you're starting complaining about the problems. I mean, we, we all get used to it. The fact is, we've still got the largeness and we've still got the luxury of the life. Lar- we've come, come, become used to it. And this is true of spiritual things as well. But you know, that joy is a joy that, at times. We know We know it. The peace is a peace which does pass understanding. That means it's not beyond understanding. We we never know it. But it, it, it passes our understanding. We're amazed at it. Why have I got this peace in this situation? I don't understand it. Do you understand what I mean? Um, the, 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 the fact of the matter is that uh, the enemy makes us a living contradiction that's what he wanted to do with these children of God whose history had gone right back to Abraham, to Isaac and to Jacob, whose history had been a glorious deliverance to, a, to pass the Passover of the Lamb in Egypt when they were slaves now he wants to make them slaves, not in Egypt but in the very land that God had won for them Promise them, oh, how terrible is the enemy, that if he can't make you a slave in Egypt, in the world, when you've gone into Christ, he'll try to make you a slave. There, his slave, his vassal, subjugated to him. When you're a child of God, look at the method, please. The method of this fight is quite simple. He, it, the enemy's method is to turn their eyes on the visible. They didn't send out a little shrimp of a man. No doubt there would have been some of the children of God that would have taken on such a little shrimp. They chose a man who was head and shoulders, well, I should have thought, waist above everyone else. An enormous And out they send this man. Now, the devil always knows what he's doing in your life and my life. His method has never changed over uh, the centuries. It is to turn our eyes on the visible. Always, always, always is to put something before us, visibly, which is so complex, which is so difficult, which is so entrenched, which is so impossible that we we take our eyes off the Lord and we look at this thing and we say, oh, it's impossible. And it it is impossible. I mean, who can get down a Goliath? If I were to meet a Goliath, I should think he would have finished with me in no time. And I don't think there's anyone in this company that could take on a Goliath. Naturally, the devil's perfectly right in saying to us, look at this giant of a man. Why? He'd only have to turn round quickly and just jolt you, and you'd probably be dislocated from your neck down to your toes. The man's an enormous man. Just take one look at the man, and then, please, look at the armour that's on him. It's not just the man's muscles and the man, the, the type of man that he is, but look at what's on the man. And now, please, will you look at, what, at his weapons, a dagger, a sword and a spear? armed to the teeth. Oh, how clever. Now, this situation in your office, this situation in your home, this situation in your own life, don't you see this is what the devil does? He tries to get you to look at him. He makes you look at the, at the Goliath. He makes you look first at the stature of the problem. Then he makes you look at the armor of the problem. Then he makes you look at the weapons that, that as it were, are, are there to defend the problem. I have no doubt at all that we're all completely lost once our eyes are on the visible. That's why it says in Hebrews 11, Moses endured, through faith, he endured as seeing him who is invisible. And the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 puts it like this, whilst he says, out of light affliction, but for a moment. Worketh for us in exceeding an exceeding and eternal way to God, whilst we look not at the things which are seen, but the things which are unseen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are unseen are eternal. Now, it is just this whole question that your eyes are on the Lord. I mean, they must have been on the Lord. How could you have been saved if you hadn't beheld the Lamb of God who bore away the sin? Your eye, the eyes of your heart, saw the Lord at some point. Now, immediately, the enemy's job is to deflect your eyes away from the Lamb of God. Who he is, what he is, where he is, and set them on the problem. The enemy's uh, method. Now, the second part of his method is first to turn your eyes on the visible. The second is put fear into you. Now, you always know when the enemy's around because you've got fear. You just get afraid. You were quite all right before, and then all of a sudden, fear seizes you, and you almost tremble. You've seen the old Goliath, and suddenly, the impossibility of the whole thing has dawned on you. Your eyes are off the Lord. You don't see him as the victor. You don't see him as greater than this one who's in the world. You don't see that greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. But suddenly you, you the, the problem has dawned on you in its magnitude, in its impossibility. It's to make them afraid and to lose heart. I suppose that one day when we're in heaven and we look back on church history and we hear the stories of all the saints, we shall discover that this being made afraid and losing heart was at the root of nearly every great defeat, personal and corporate. Morale. In the war, oh, what a business it is. Morale. Keeping the men's morale up. It's the determining thing in a battle being won or lost. Not always numbers, you know morale. Spiritually it is exactly the same. If only the enemy can make us afraid so that we lose heart. And the last thing is he defies us. Now there's something awful when someone defies you. And when you have a problem that absolutely defies you looks you straight in the eyes and says, I defy It can almost paralyze it. Well, now, let's look for a few moments, our last moments, on this question of this fight. The fight, it's not just the fight, but it's the fight of faith. The fight of faith. It's not a normal fight fought in a normal way with normal weapons. It's the fight of faith. Now, many Christians make a mistake here. They think they're in a fight. You're not just in a fight. You're in a fight of faith. The operative thing in this conflict is faith. The absence of it spells defeat. The presence of it spells victory. Because faith is nothing in itself. Faith is the thing that latches on to God. Faith is created by seeing the Lord. Faith is maintained by looking unto the Lord. And the job is completed by continuing to look unto the Lord. Um, It is this fight of faith. Now, this is just really a question of facts. Invisible facts, but absolute facts. Oh, you can't see them, you can't handle them. But those facts are more real than the things you can see and handle. Here's a table. It's a fact. An actual fact. The finished work of Jesus Christ, which I cannot handle and cannot see like this table, is far more absolute than this table. This table will pass away. It's a fact, but it's not really such a fact. The finished work of Jesus Christ is an eternal fact. Now, I can hold this table. I can feel this table. I can look at this table. I could measure this table. I can walk right round this table. Therefore, because I see it, it seems to be so real, such a fact. What kind of fact is this table? Another thousand years? and I dare say it will have gone. Or it will have been so sort of screwed up and bits and pieces added to it that it won't be the original table. But the finished work of Jesus Christ, that's going to outlast eternity, if you persist. That is a fact. Now then, there are many other things. For instance, go into a garden, take these plants. Here is a plant. An azalea. It's a fact. You can go and touch it. You can see it. You can understand that. It's a fact. But that thing has a life, a a duration of life, and it will one day finish. But God, God is here. You can't see God with this eye. You can't hear God with this ear. You can't feel God with these hands. But God is an absolute fact transcending the fact of alien. Now, don't you see that this whole matter, this fight of faith, is to latch on to something which is unseen, but which is absolute? Why should I take in a table and think that that table is absolutely marvellous because I can feel it and touch it and allow it that to get me down and sidetrack yeah, me? I, I hope you understand what I am saying in a rather fanciful way, when re- the real fact is not seen. You see, Goliath is only flesh and blood. He might be nine foot, but he won't live more than three, or three score years and ten. And if by reason of strength he lives to four score, yet will it be a sorrow? He's only flesh and blood why, then, should we sort of look at this nine-foot man loaded down with all this armour and with his weapons as if he is the fact that's going to determine everything? No! The fight of faith is to say, "Huh, That man, is just flesh and blood like everyone else. True, he's twice my size in every way. Up and that way. But never mind! God is bigger than Goliath. Now that's exactly how David met him. David was only a lad, but he met him like that. Who is this man? He said, this uncircumcised Philistine. What a way to refer to him. No one else had dared call him an uncircumcised Philistine unless they'd whispered it in the tent in the middle of the night. (laughs) Or terrified of the man. I do suppose Saul referred to him as that. But David said, who is this little lad? Comes and says, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Now what's wrong with this boy? Is he just arrogant? Is he presumptuous? No! He's seen an eternal and absolute fact which is invisible. The fact of the matter is this. These are no ordinary people. These Israelites, they're no ordinary people. They are the covenant people of the living God. Therefore, this Goliath is nothing more than if he was a midget. And perhaps less. That's the fight of faith. Of course, if you want to look at Goliath, and then you sort of got your big Goliath, so then you look at me and you think, now, I wonder if I took my problem to lunch. Could he help me? No, no. I think my problem's bigger than him. And then you think, what about Ron? No. <laughs> My problem's bigger than Ron. Now, what about... Campbell McAlpine? No. no. What about uh, Dr. Martin lloyd No. My problem's too big for any honor. My problem's a Goliath! No one will be able to face this. But supposing you sat down and thought of someone who wasn't, as it were, to be seen with the naked eye. Supposing you sat down and thought about the Lord Jesus Christ and thought, now, is this Goliath bigger than him? Suddenly you begin to say something. Of course not. However, could I have been so deceived? How could I have been so taken in by this propaganda from the Philistine side? This Goliath? Why, the Lord's only got to blow on him and he'll fall over backwards. eternal, invisible, unchangeable, unshakable. That's what the fight of faith is all about. It's more than that. It's the declaration of those facts. You see here, in 1 Samuel 17 and 45, listen to David's words. Thou comest to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, And I come to thee in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom thou hast defied. This day will the Lord deliver thee into my hand, and I will smite thee and take thy head from off thee. And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day unto the birds of the heavens and to the wild beasts of the earth. This is a lad that's talking. He's not even been allowed to become a conscript in the army because he's too young. Listen to this. I... He says, I will give thee, not only take your head from off your shoulders, which was some talk, let me tell you, he couldn't even get up there. I'll take your head from off your shoulders, but, he says, I'll give the bodies of this great host to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the field. That's some kind of talk for a lad, isn't it? And he hasn't even gone out yet into the real battle. It's not started, the contest. Now he says, and that uh, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. Now there's the secret. David wasn't being presumptuous or arrogant. He said that all the earth may know that there's a God in Israel. That's the point. And that all this assembly may know that the Lord saveth not with sword and spear. Oh, this dad... He's got hold of spiritual principles. All the other lot were quaking in their tents because they thought that the thing that determined this battle was strength. But this little lad had seen right through all that. He saw that it wasn't sword or spear or natural strength. It was a question of whether these, this Goliath was on a collision course with the God of Israel. And he was. So David said, right-o. I'll jump in on this. He's on the collision course. I think that's just tremendous because it's a declaration of facts. Now, it will always help you to declare facts. You'll never get anywhere till you declare facts, and you must declare them out loud. Now, your Goliath in your life, you'll never find him disappear till you declare the facts, till you stand up and say, not arrogantly, but you say, you're on a collision course with my God. Right. We'll lift your head off your shoulders. Can you say that in faith to your problem? Go on! You'll be amazed what will happen if once we start to look at some of the problems that confront us and say, I'll have your head off your shoulders. If, as a company, we were to meet these things, these challenges of the enemy along this line, today, we'll have your head off your shoulders. Not because we're anything... Oh, it would have been different if around David there was a whole sort sort of battalion of men armed to the teeth, or if he himself was absolutely like some mobile tank, Moving forward to meet this giant of a man. But look at him. He goes out with nothing but his shepherds uh, jerkin, on. That's all. A pouch hanging on one side and a stick. And this is the thing that aggravates Goliath. He says, am I a dog? Did you come out with sticks? A sling and five stones. We all know the story so well. Oh, the declaration of fact declaration of facts. What are the facts? Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on life eternal. That's the fact. You don't see it. But it's a fact. And that life can come coursing into you as by faith you declare they overcame him that is the enemy by the blood of the Lamb by the word of their testimony. They declared the fact. Oh, Lord, I feel like death warmed up, but I'm one with you in this situation. And you are. Goliath goes back. His head's come off his shoulders. Oh, if only we could learn how to meet the enemy in this great f- with this fight of faith. You see? It, it, it's the word of your testimony. Don't say, Lord, please, please give me more life. Turn it over into praise and say, Lord, I don't know, I'm as weak as a newborn babe, but you're my strength. I'm filled with power. Don't go in saying, oh, I'm hopeless. Just say, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. If you have had a real experience of the Holy Spirit? Don't just be all the time sort of saying, oh dear, oh dear, I must, I must go off to one of those conferences again. No, <laughs> say the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, and he will be upon you when you declare it. It's faith. By faith you walk. Go into the situation declaring what is yours. And you'll find that it is yours. David had five stones. He only used one. And his one stone hit the target. Sank into the man's forehead. And he was finished. Oh. If only you and I knew how to use the weapons God has given us. We don't need great big cumbersome swords. A dangle on the ground will get between our legs. Can you imagine, David, poor fellow, if he'd gone out with that great sword, of sword? It would have probably tripped him up. <laughs> dragged along the ground, got in the, in the boy's way. But he, he was done with that. When he needed a sword, he used Goliath's sword. I've often thought, as that great giant lay flat on the ground, David went there and pulled, probably with both hands, pulled the thing out, and then lifted it up and dispatched the enemy. And then, like some other naughty boy, I'm afraid, he took the head in his hand and wouldn't be parted from it for quite a few days, from what we can gather, because if you read on the story, (laughs) when he was called to see the king, he went into the king with the head still in his hand. But it was a triumph, wasn't it? I mean, you remember what, um, uh, who was it that was speaking, uh, Peter Line this last Thursday, spoke here and said, we not only must learn how to bind the strong man, but how to plunder his goods. That head was the plundered goods. It was as if David was saying, look here. Now, you'll never see that man again. Only his head. Laying hold on life eternal, whereunto you were called. Oh, if we only knew how to use our spiritual weapons properly. And remember now, those of you who are older in the Lord, in this country, if once you take on Goliath, once you go out to him in the name of the Lord, remember, never forget this, that when your stone has done its work, make sure you dispatch him. Or in his last death throes, he may injure you. Never forget, in this country, do the job cleanly. And finally, with spiritual things. Well, lastly then, what can we say? Only this. The person God uses is only a lad. Now you thought to think straight away, oh, well, he was a very special lad. But no, 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 no. He had all those other brothers, eight of them, and he, they were all bigger and better than him in every way. And here was this David. A young lad. And uh, it was he that God used. Now, it is a question of faith always and every time. And he was alone. I noticed that no one went with him, no one supported him. The lad walked out alone. I want you also to therefore see that there is no excuse for any of. If there's a Goliath in your life, it doesn't matter how young you are, how weak you are, how small you are, or stature, however, how insignificant you are, how overlooked you are. The fact is, it's not you. It's not, the Lord doesn't save with sword or spear. It's whether you've got faith in the living God. That's all. And then will you also notice how David says that you have defied I come against you, he says, in the name of the Lord God, the name of the God of Israel, the God of the armies of Israel, the Lord of hosts, whom you have defied. Now it's an interesting thing that if you look through the story, you will see that it's God's armor, and God's name and God's glory, which is at David's heart. Not his own armor, and his own name and his own glory. And when David put God's honor and God's name and God's glory first, he got honor and a name and glory. And that's always true. He didn't do it to become something in Israel. He did it because he saw that someone was paralyzing the people of God and challenging the law. And will you also notice that the kind of person God uses may be only a laugh, and may be nothing in himself, but notice that he cannot use armour that is not his. Oh, this has been said before, that he can't use armour that's not his. When Saul dressed him up, remember Saul was head and shoulders above everyone else. Saul dressed him up in his tunic and then a coat of mail and put a, a, a helmet on his head, which was evidently I suppose his, and this great sword he strapped on him. And poor old David hesitated because it was just too much. So he said, if you don't mind, I haven't proved these things. Can I take them off? And the king said, all right, all right, take them off. He took them all you know, you can't copy other people. So the, the biggest trouble with our Goliaths is we're all trying to copy someone else. Hudson Taylor or Wesley or some great friend or someone else who you feel is filled But you try to copy them. You, you can't do it. Go out with what you've proved. Now, this means that however young you are, you must start proving the law. And this is, isn't this exactly what comes out when David said, Sir, I am my father's shepherd. I look after some of his flocks. And when bears and lions come, I tell you what I do. I go out after them. And then he told exactly what he trusted the Lord. He had his own experience, not with Goliath, but with bears and lions. Now, if you want to be a good soldier for Jesus Christ, you can be quite sure that into your life, God will allow there to come bears and lions. And you've got to know how to deal with them first. (laughs) Then you've got a history behind you. When the point comes of great crisis, you've got a history. No longer a bear or a lion, it's a great Goliath. But the God who dealt with the bears and the lions will deal with this Goliath. That's how God deals. It's the kind of person God uses. Oh, for a faith like that! It's uh, really a question not of the person, but of the Lord. And you know there have been some wonderful Davids in history. Oh, some of the Davids would be Martin Luther was a David. That Goliath that stood against Martin Luther was a giant. It was absolutely impossible that Martin Luther took five stones and a sling and he fell them. Mary Slessor was a David. She was such a terrified woman when she was young that she couldn't even cross the street for fear of the carriages, horse-drawn carriages. She used to hide in the doorway uh, with a head towards the door till they rambled past and shoot out a frightened rabbit across the street. The same woman, when she came home and spoke to gatherings, couldn't bear to look at men. She could never speak if men were present. And what she did was she spoke a whole message, face to the wall, if there were any men in She was quite as a weak person, Mary Slessor. But this woman, this factory girl, God took hold off and was sent out to West Africa and when she went out God said to her, Queens shall come to your rising. She could never understand it. She went out to West Africa and she gave her whole life tramping through the bush country of West Africa till she was known as the White Queen by all the cannibal tribes of what we now know as Biafra. Oh, what that woman did. The orphans that she took. I told you the story before of how they were going to have war. And they had a great palaver. And they were all the big chiefs with nothing but a few feathers on all their war paint. Spent the whole morning from sunrise to sunset palaver and she could see as the sun was beginning to set that they had already decided it was all just a facade. They wanted war. That woman who was so frightened of men, clothed and in their right mind, let alone those who were half naked with just a few feathers, had sat the whole day at the top of this conference, knitting. She got up, put down her knitting, went round the whole 30 of them, and boxed everyone's (laughs) ears. They signed peace, cut their wrists and let their blood flow together. And there was no more trouble in West Africa to the Biafra nigeria War. That was Mary Schleser. Oh, what a woman. And I haven't finished the story. When the Queen went to uh, Nigeria and Ghana on the state visit, when she went, if you saw the royal film, she went the grave of Mary lesser and she did a thing that the queen by tradition should never do she it before uh, the grave and made it with her. it was a fulfillment of a verse that God had given to Mary lesser long before isn't that amazing oh there are so many Davids in history who met Goliath and slain them through faith the living God as I think the writer to the letter of the Hebrew says time would fail me to tell of all the others or we'd be here all night as we thought of others Hudson Taylor who went to China what a Goliath it was closed inland China but God called him and the Goliath fell and all that we've known really in many ways in China came as a result of Hudson Taylor's faith in the beginning. C.T. Studd went and as he went out a man as you well know, I've told it I think before when he went he was finished with asthma, gallstones heart trouble and I don't know what else, he went to the doctor to see if he was all right for going out as a missionary to Africa after having been a missionary in China and India and he was written off. So he said thank you very much I shall now ask another physician I shall have a second opinion. A little later, C.T. Sturd came back with the fact that the second opinion he'd sought for was not only forthcoming, but was positive. It was only many years later that people found that the second opinion was the Lord. He'd sought the Lord as his position. He went out and the boat, going out to the Congo, forsaken by everyone, his wife having misgivings about it, the board that had backed him financially uh, withdrew with not a penny and not a friend. God said to C.T. Studd, as he knelt in absolute uh, depression and gloom, this is not for conquer, but for the whole world. When C.T. Studd died, he was a very difficult man. When he died, he'd wrecked the mission. There were only a handful left in one way. They couldn't put up with this stalwart soldier. Of the Lord. He was a bit too much for them. The UFM was one of the split away. One of the other things was split away. But what's happened? He's in heaven, but his works follow him. That work become one of the biggest missionary works, fellowships, in the world and it's worldwide. All kinds of things all over the world can be traced to the faith of those working through that fellowship. It's amazing. You see, it was a Goliath. A terrible Goliath that defied but that Goliath was fell, and uh, God's purpose stood. Well, may we be people like that David, like David, with faith in the living God. Shall we pray? Lord, there's not one of us in this room that doesn't need to see thee more clearly. Oh, Father, that the dimness of our sight might be removed. And that if we're looking at our Goliaths, Lord, the things that stand in our way and defy us, defy thee, Lord, challenge thee. Taunt us. Oh, Father, we pray that our eyes may be taken off the impossibility of the problem and placed upon our Lord Jesus Christ, who has already won the victory. Father, we do thank Thee, as Luther once said, a little word shall fell him. We praise Thee, beloved Lord, that a word from Thee in our hearts through living faith can can bring any Goliath down. Oh, God, give us, we pray, the faith to face the Goliath personally, to have his head off his shoulders. And, O Lord, we pray for faith to face the Goliaths that stand astride, our way as a company. And Lord, faith for those Goliaths that stand defying thy people all over the world. O oh God, we praise thee, thou art still the God of a little lad, David. Today thou art still the same. And we praise thee that thou canst still do the same. So, Father, use this little time to put into us a new spirit that we shall not flee and quake and fear and lose heart, but we shall encourage ourselves in the Lord our God, knowing that we are his people. O Father, help us, we pray, and we ask it in the name of our Lord Jesus.